everyone. This is Laurel Hightower, and you are listening to Ink Heist. I am joined tonight, as always, by my co-hosts, Rich Duncan and Shane Douglas Keen. And this evening, we are privileged to be joined by Kathy Kocha. How are you this evening? I'm well on a historic day in these United States. Yes, very much so. We are thrilled to have you tonight. Um, I know you really kind of need no introduction, but we do usually do sort of a, a new kid at school uh, kind of intro. So if you want to do a little bit of a rundown about what you're about and what you've got going on. Oh, okay. Um, I always It's always harder to do these things because it's like, what is interesting about what I'm doing now? And I try to think what will people be most interested in? Um, Probably the one-two punch of Velocities, my new story collection, is just out last month from Meerkat Press. And The Cypher, the only novel in the world with a fun hole at its center, will be be coming out in September of this year, uh, a reprint of a book that has been out of print in English for a long time, although available in lots of other languages and in an e-edition, but we will have a new print English edition from Meerkat Press. So that is pretty fun. And besides that, uh, I'm a writer, I'm a producer and director of immersive events. Um, I have a very interesting immersive novel called Dark Factory uh, teed up for later this year. And I'm watching the said political situation with great interest, as are we all. Yes. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, well, and I, I can't wait to talk about all of this. I do kind of want to back up because I, I so you have an immersive novel teed up. I would love to know what what's involved with that. Well, it's really it's it's been a real stretch for me. And I like to. I like to try things that I haven't done before. When I started to do immersive live events, um, I all I knew is that I thought they were a wonderful way to experience a narrative to rather than watch something, you know, from the safety of your seat, you're walking around, you're in the midst of it. Everything is happening all around you, just like in real life. And I started to explore that and experience it. And I thought, wow, this is really great. I want to do something. So I made a bunch of shows with a lot of different and incredibly talented creative people, um, dancers and movement artists and visual artists and video artists and set designers and fire creators and musicians, all kinds of people. (laughs) Oh, it it was super fun. Some of them were commissions and some of them were um, were my own productions. And the more I did them, the more I wanted to see if I couldn't bring that experience somehow to the the world of the novels. Novels are immersive anyway. Right. I mean, just by their nature. But we we experience the world of a piece of fiction in a different way than we experience a live event. And I'm, tr- I have done productions of my own work before. Um, I did most notably my under the poppy novel that's set in a Victorian brothel. And so I made a Victorian brothel with puppets for people to, to run around in, and we had a great time. 
Um, oh, that wow. was in actually that was in a Victorian home in Detroit, and the man who had bought the home it had never been empty, but he had bought it from a lady who had done different kinds of rehab to it, and he was restoring it to its original, as close to original as he could get. And because of that, some walls were torn down and things were looking, you know, kind of rough and ready. So it was perfect for us. And and we had a really good time having people come in and watch the show take place on three different levels and see the sex puppets and do all the stuff. So I'm, I'm working with various people, um, a DJ and a floral designer and a wonderful artist called Quinine Hours and bringing all these people together to try to figure out how do we tell, how can people experience a story, a narrative on their device, right? But it's also a book, but it's also other things. So I've been working on that for the last couple years and I'm getting closer to the end, but it's been very, it's been a learning experience. And because there are a lot of books out there with like physical print books that use um, what I want to say, kind of experimental graphic setups and design. And House of Leaves is probably the one that we all know the best, right? Yeah. 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 And I have read and I asked asked folks on the socials, you know, if you can give me examples, I would would love to check them out. And I read a bunch of them and they almost all stink. And the reason they stink (laughs) is not that they're bad books. It's that the narrative is so hard to follow in that particular format that you would never do it more than once. You know, House of Leaves is probably the only exception. And it, some of these were so difficult and they were, some of them were really quite good books, but they were so difficult to read that you would never do it. You know, it's it's a stunt. It's like going through a corn maze or something. I mean, it's fun, but you're not going to go to the same corn maze more than once. So it can can only give you that experience once. And I wanted to figure out how do you create something like that for people that they will want to come back to? And it will be consistently interesting and, and surprising. Um, and I can go on and on about this shit for days. So, you know, jump in. When you get fired. <laughs> I That's 60 minutes over. So what else are you doing? <laughs> oh, okay, One more thing that I forgot about that. You know, I th- I really think this is going to work out, Kathy. Um, <laughs> your your attitude is shaping up to be really similar to a lot of people right here right now. Um, I find that fascinating. Um, the whole collaborative experience amazes me, and it seems like a. Um, once again, I keep referencing these Detroit authors, but you guys seem like you have some real fucking big cojones compared to some authors. I mean, you're willing to jump into these huge, collaborative, complex things like this and make them happen. And it just is it's I can't imagine how that experience must feel, you know, when you bring all those people together like a dance troupe or something. You know, it's it's a lot safer than it sounds because you realize fairly early on if you're going to do it, if you're going if you're going to do it in a way that produces something 
that's greater than the sum of its parts, which is what you're trying to do anyway, you learn to lean on, you find the very best people to collaborate that you can, the people who are not only operating at a, a very high technical level in whatever their discipline is, but who are you know, simpatico with, with whatever the idea is. And then you get out of the way. You just get out of the way. And the things that happen are, and you all know, you all know that it's correct. Um, I had done a, a, an adaptation of Christopher Marlowe's Edward II that was, it's called, it was called Glitter King. And it was set in, I, the space I used was a, a gallery in Detroit, but the idea was you are coming to this bar in Berlin, this punk bar in Berlin. And so the inside of the gallery was all tricked out like this really shitty bar with <clears throat> just, you know, a dead pair of oddly stained jeans in one of the bathrooms and posters all over the wall and shit ripped up. And we gave people chalk and paint and things to write on the walls and, and do stuff. But the the people with whom I worked on that show, the art, the other artists were so all I really had to do was say, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's a kind of uh, super minimal script, but because it's set in a punk bar, you're not going to be walking around saying words who can hear you, right? The DJ is going to be, you know, blasting the music. So everything that's, that is done, all this narrative has to take place pretty much without words and for a writer, that was an immense challenge to say, how can we get across what this play was trying to convey while using pretty much zero dialogue? And it was what happened was so incredibly fun. And that other Detroit author that we know and love, uh, he and Allison were there and some friends. And it was just it was phenomenal to watch what not only what we made but what the the people attending made because I mean it's exactly like a novel it's exactly in that you're reading the book but you're bringing everything you are to that experience and so nobody reads the same the same book right any everybody's fun hole is different how's that right, yeah yeah <laughs> everybody's fun hole is different but yeah, you come to a book with your own set of associations and your own, you know, power of of imagination and you make the book with the writer. Now that's yeah, that's fascinating. Um because it, it's kind of like, you know, the way I if someone asked me, "Hey, what's your poetry about?" I'd like I well, what you know, what does your experience say it's about? Because that's who that's who's experiencing it, not me right there. So and this is a much more intense version of that, what you're talking about. I would it's like, where do I sign up? I know. And that's what was so fun, too, because so many people who were who had come to the shows then also wanted to participate in some way because it, it is it's, it's just an enormous amount of fun. And the story that I like to tell about the patrons, because it blew all of our minds, we had no idea people were going to do this. Um, I had done a version of Alice in Wonderland, and the venue was this, it was a, a church building with like a school attached to it, and 
the the part where we were doing most of the main action because we met people in like the church hall, but then we ran them all through the campus and they were following the white rabbit and running up and down stairs and all this stuff. But when they got to the main playing area, it was a preschool with, you know, little, little crazy little chairs and, and a weird piano and this other stuff. And we had that all tricked out like Wonderland. And one of the characters we didn't have Tweedledum and Tweedledee. We only had one Tweedle because in our story, the Tweedle had lost her other Tweedle partner and was hopelessly psychotic as a result. But she was really nice. And she was this really beautiful Tweedle that just lived in one of the schoolrooms. And she had Laffy Taffy and nail polish. And she kept inviting people to come in and hang out with her. And because the performer is very gifted and and people loved her. People would go in sometimes on some of the show nights, they'd spend most of the night in there with the Tweedle, just laughing it up and eating candy and having a good time. And one of the other characters, the Red Queen, was as murderous as she is in, in Alice in Wonderland, but even more so. And at a certain point in the evening, she goes into the Tweedle's room and she kills her. She straight out murders this Tweedle, this inoffensive, innocent, friendly, pink wigged little creature. And when we were, were doing rehearsals, they, the Red Queen, the Tweedle wanted to be killed and left for dead on the floor. And I said, Marianne, you can't do that because the light in here is low. People are going to be walking. Someone's going to step on you and hurt you. So we, there's no way we can do this. We have to have you dead somewhere else. So the Red Queen, Rachel, said, well, I know, I'll kill her and throw her on that couch. Okay, fine. So the Tweedle's brutally murdered and thrown on the couch, and people are just aghast, all these people in this hallway seeing this happen. Because at first, there would be like a little nervous laugh, or they weren't sure. And then it, it became clear that this Tweedle was killed and was dead and left her dead on the couch. And as the action moved on, the people stopped and looked at her the same way you would look at a coffin in a funeral home viewing. It raised all the hair on the back of our necks. We never thought that they would do anything like that, but they stopped. They pressed her hand. They looked at her. They touched her hair exactly as if she was a dead friend. It was, whoa. And People took it very much to heart later when the Red Queen tried to get after the March Hare. People stood between them and then I had to go over and say, because on the one hand, it's amazing that they're they're like, no, you're not going to do this again. And you're like, wow, this is so great. And yet these two people have choreographed what's going to happen next very carefully. And I, you know, there is a risk for someone getting hurt if you get in the way that you're going to throw them off and somebody could get hurt. So I would have to go over and pull people away and say, you know, you can't interfere. This is Wonderland, you know, or whatever I said to make them stop. But wow, that they were that invested in what happened. In fact, I lost a friend over that production. A friend said, an ex-friend said to me afterwards, if you could cause that to happen to that Tweedle, I don't even think I know you. And that was he didn't want to talk to me after that. He's like, I can't believe you let that happen. Like, you do realize wow. this was make-believe, right? He's like, yeah, well, if that's what you, that I'm, we're just not friends. So, 
So uh, it really worked. It that's so uh, <laughs> we call the yeah we call that killed a fake cat syndrome. Yeah, and oh. although that does uh, that bothers me, I will say that that bothers me. That is something that I, I can't watch in in films. I have to run out of the room. I, well, just I can't, can't watch it. I can't watch any animal be harmed in a film. No way. And I think it's really, and you know, I'm guilty of it too. I was guilty of it in the cipher. And believe me, if I had it to do over again, that mouse would never have died. Okay, I don't, I, I do not like that anymore. And I'm sorry it's in there. But I, in, yeah, no, it can be a really lazy way for, especially for a filmmaker, right, to show you a dog. And then the bad guy does something to the dog. So we know how bad the guy really is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're just sweating it. All the every, When the dog walks in, you're like, oh, shit, what's going to happen to the dog? Is something going to happen to that dog? Is that dog going to die? Because I can't watch this. I'm not going to watch this. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the way, uh, like, if um, it worked for something like Ketchum's Red because th- that was the story. That mm-hmm. was what the story was about. But with when it's just something to get you to read the story or watch the story, then it's no longer anything useful at all. And it's lazy, too. I mean, we can all agree that that means that a person is an extremely bad person if they hurt an animal. Okay. Yeah. But don't show me. And also, don't just, like, walk this dog in to be brutally murdered later. At least, you know, the dog is just a prop then. I mean, can't you brutally murder, like, a person? Or can't you you do something other than hurting an animal? Really, I have no issues with the hairless monkeys being used as props, but the rest of them can, you know. I know, right? Just get the animals out of it. Exactly. I didn't didn't ask for any of this. And, yes, no no animals were ever harmed in the making of any of my shows, so... I'm, I'm sure thinking about that. how how brave the uh, the Red Queen actress was to be able to, because I'm sure she yeah. got quite a bit of um, a vitriol. Oh, people were afraid of her. People were afraid of her, and they removed themselves when she would come by. And she's a wonderful person. We've worked together on many many shows and events. And uh, her name is Rachel Harbert, and she's a movement artist and teacher, and she's just wonderful i love to work with her but she's completely unafraid completely unafraid um she played renfield in our our production of dracula and the performance was done in a it used to be an old um mercantile building in detroit like an old storefront window shop window building and friends of mine have owned it for years and years and so we did the performance in the windows and then we brought people into like a little vestibule so they could watch what was happening in the shop windows. And one of the windows was Renfield's uh, madhouse room. And Rachel had to break out of, uh, we got her an actual straitjacket and she had to break out of it while people were watching and get herself downstairs to where the main action was every night. And she just rose to the occasion. That just uh, this ho- this whole thing just is like I I don't know it's it, it's just incredible to listen to because I I mean I I guess I, I I had heard a little bit about stuff like this but not you know not to this level and it just seems like it would be such a such an amazing event 
you know, so, to, so for you to be working on something, a way to be able to involve people in something like that without having, you know, the, that's a continuous ability to return to. I just think that's such an exciting project. And it's great because you never know what's going to happen. And you never know how the people are going to react. And what what's important in any live event, especially when people are in a situation or in a place where they've never been before, is to kind of show them, I've got, we have got parameters here. And we will redirect you or stop you or whatever. You don't have to worry because we know where the walls are. So to communicate that in such a way that they then will feel safe, you know, playing in the in the space that you made, that's the biggest challenge. And some people will never let themselves really go. Some people like to experience it just by watching, which is fine. If that's the way they get the most out of it, that's great. Very rarely have I seen people at, at my shows who don't want to be there and make it plain they don't want to be there there are people who are like that like they're they're really showing you they're not going to play along with your bullshit right they're just they're here because their friends drag them here or whatever it's like okay but you're ruining it for the rest of us (laughs) (laughs) maybe there could be a room for them to hang out in just you know they and it's 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 a kind of tiresome sort of, you know, I see what you guys are doing and I'm just like, not really gonna, okay, then why are you, I mean, why are you even here? It's like going to, you know, a movie and talking loudly through it and being rude and mean. Why did you bother? Don't you have anything else to do? Don't you have laundry to do? (laughs) (laughs) That's it. They need a laundry room. Just no there one has ever go. caught no one has ever caught up on laundry. So as soon as they have that attitude, they get shown to the laundry room and they do laundry there the rest you go. of the evening. Get busy, right? Get busy. Okay, there's a lot of laundry to do. Are you familiar with the myth of Sisyphus? Because yeah. now it's your turn. Yeah, it's your turn. You got a lot of fucking laundry to do. Isn't that true? You never get all the washing done. There's there's always some dirty ass thing that requires attention right after you finish yeah. folding everything right yeah. oh, man. Oh. Oh. wow what if i just threw that away would anyone know exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. i didn't threw need that i needed a new pair anyway that's right <laughs> but yeah it's, it's as individual an experience as i mean the same way people will hate read books and you're like are you going to live forever? Do you really have that much time to waste that you're going to hate read something? <laughs> Just yeah. throw it down if you don't like it. You know, that's my philosophy. It's like people always ask, why don't you write bad reviews? And it's like, well, because I don't read bad books. When they get bad, I move on. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, no, I'm 55 years old. I don't have any fucking time for that. I know. Same. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and I'm older than that. And it's like, no, I don't have time to read. If I don't, if I don't like it, if it's not speaking, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Am I just? I don't have the receptors for it. If I don't have the receptors for it, I'm not going to read it. Right. I never like my few Goodreads reviews are always actually good reads. It's like here are things I really liked because you know X Y Z. I think they're good, but I. And I don't see the value of unless there's some other reason that you really need to trash something 
I don't see the point. I don't and either. Like, yeah. There's a like this person is evil and their stuff should be exposed. But if it's just a crappy book, walk on. Yeah, yeah it's not it's not worth anybody's time, not yours or the people people that would read it if you uh, talked about it. So, I mean, in my opinion, it's not worth anybody's time to read me saying, hey, this book sucked. Don't read it. When they right. can read me saying, hey, this is a great book. You should read it. What's that's worthwhile. Because we're never mm-hmm. going to get to all the really good books that we want to read. Sad but true. I mean, there are books in this room that I'm looking at right now and going, I, man, I better get busy. <laughs> Why have I not <laughs> yeah. read that? Why have I not read that? Oh, I have that. Oh, I, really, I mean, that's a universal experience. Right? Yep. You look at your TBR pile and you're like, oh, God, okay. Yep. If I do nothing but read from now till I die and maybe, you know, poop to or go to the grocery yeah. store yeah. I might be able to get this done okay but yeah it's very real very it, when you sit there I'm in the same boat exactly I probably could live two Shanes and still not read all this shit I know and then the things that you want to write too or the other things that exactly. you want to do right and you're like oh I know I, that's why I can never understand people who are like I'm so bored yeah how can you be bored? Wow. I do that too. How is that possible? Yeah, it, it truly isn't. It isn't. But that's a that's a different kind of black hole boredom. That's not a fun hole. That's an unfun hole. Right? Um, very, very much so. Yeah. It's, uh, there's enough depression in the world without being bored with it too. And especially since we've all been in lockdown and, you know, in various ways for, for people who – I am not an essential worker in the sense of having to leave. Of yeah. course, everything I write is completely essential to everyone's life. But besides that, I'm not an essential worker. And I didn't have to leave this house for several months. And that was a, a completely different experience of time that I did a couple interviews where folks were saying, well, do you think that because, you know, you write horror and and maybe you have a working knowledge of catastrophe, you know, is this time that we're in, uh, do you think you're equipped in any way to deal with it? No, Yeah. no, not even a little bit. No, no. I, I think the best thing that any writer or artist can do to process this is just keep watching yeah, but there's so much of it, and it just keeps coming, right? Yeah, that's what what you do, though. I mean, what I do personally, I can't advise anybody else, but is just watch it and write it out, you know, and work work my own way through it. But it's an interesting segue um, into something I've been thinking about a lot lately when it comes to you and your work, and that is that you at least must have some pretty great insight into some of the mentality behind you know how people are responding and reacting to situations and things right now because it seems like like um what would you call it um social isolation seems like it's a pretty big theme of yours you you touch on that you tap into that a lot it seems like and it's really in a lot of ways it is a very different experience because they're voluntarily I, they're isolated even, I mean, you know, the what is it, alone in a crowd, right? They're 
they're self-isolated in the sense that the the reality that they're experiencing is sort of like a Venn diagram with everybody else's reality, depending on, you know, the, the book that we're talking about or the character we're talking about. But a lot of them are self-isolated because they're working. They're working on something or they're trying to do something or they're trying to, you know, plumb the depths of the fun hole or they're trying to make some art or or whatever, and they're a step or two back from the shared consensus reality that everyone else is experiencing. And they're not unhappy about it, which is the difference, too. I think the friends, everybody got tired of this. Everybody, even the friends who are, you know, introverts, except for the ones who are straight up hermits. The other ones were like, you know, I thought I wanted to have all this time to, but you know, I'm kind of getting, I, I, it isn't even lonely. It's as if there's nothing to no friction. There's nothing to strike sparks from. There's nothing there. That's yeah, that's the issue. And you get weary of that. You just get, get really weary. And I, what kind of, of art will come out of this? Excuse me. I, couldn't hazard a guess i it will be it will be a while i think for most of us it's like i had a friend who had a uh was in a bad car accident years ago and the windshield glass got into her face but in such tiny fragments and so deeply that the doctor said there's no way we can get it all it oh. has to grow out. Mm. And once it gets closer to the surface of your skin, we can, and these are, we're talking like little minute particles of glass, but it had to grow out. Yeah. We had to keep going in and, you know, have a procedure done to get rid of it. Yeah. And that, I can't think of a better metaphor for yeah. something, for things that are happening now. The, the shock and the insult to all of us is so great that it's going to have to grow out. And we have not come near to the crest of any of the things that are happening. So it's, it's premature. I was talking to a friend who's also a writer, a wonderful writer. And she said, I, I don't want to go see anybody's one act about the pandemic. I just don't. I can't look at it now. I can't look yeah. at it now. It's too soon. I said, well, you don't, number one, you don't have to go. You never have to go see anybody's one act about anything if you mm-hmm. don't want to. But, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure how any of this is going to come out in people's art. I'll be really interested to watch from a distance, I think. Yeah, I think it will be, too, you know, and I mean, especially because, like you say, what all you can do really as a writer is is watch, you know, but what the thing we do, most of us very deeply as well as watch is feel. Yeah. And um, uh, that's going to produce some, I think, interesting and probably never before seen results eventually from some people. And that said, that I'm gonna I'm gonna be contrary for a minute and say you're wrong. No, I'm yeah. not gonna say that. <laughs> it wouldn't be just, it would not be the first time someone told me that and was right. So, mm. well, that, and that's very gracious. No, I'm just I'm fucking with you. <laughs> I know. What, what 
people talk about the the horror genre as being a very visceral, literally a, a really visceral genre. And I'm wondering how well it processes feelings that are not the small feelings, let's say, the smaller feelings. Is it is it a genre that is best only at the edges or can it do the small feelings too? See, I asked a question though, you guys have to answer. <laughs> Oh, turn the I, tables on it. You feel uh-huh, like one, Rich. Right. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> didn't yeah. see that coming, did you? No, I did no. not. <laughs> uh, I th- I think it's kind of hard for me to answer that, but I, I kind of feel like that horror as a genre can kind of handle a lot of, you know, all different types of feelings and, you know, it might not even necessarily be like the intended thing, but kind of going back earlier to like um, what you said about, uh, you know, like when people come to a story and what they bring to it. Like I know, uh, you know, we had uh, one of our friends, Todd Keesling, like the cipher, like that helped him through like a specific, you know, dark time that he had had. And then, so like, it might not even necessarily be that these books have to be about those feelings, like that, that was, you know, what sparked their creation, but maybe something about them can help people deal with that. Um, there's another good one. Um, I don't know if you've read it. Um, Cody loves ration. Like I felt it. Yeah. It's a really good book. Um, I think, uh, all of us read it. We didn't have him on the show, but um, it kind of tackled some really heavy themes and uh, about it's kind of like a post-apocalyptic society. And kind of the long and short of it is, you know, everybody it's mainly focused on, you know, a female perspective. And, you know, um, it, it's kind of everything's kind of focused on like, you know, hierarchies and uh, calories. I think Laurel could probably describe it better because I talked to her about it, but, and she had some really good thoughts on it. Well, it was, it's, yeah, it's, it's all female perspective because that's all that's left. Um, Mm. And it's, it's just an, it was a really interesting and in particular, and I don't mean this in a condescending way at all, uh, to Cody, because I thought he did a great job. It just was unexpected. I it, I felt unexpectedly seen as a female in reading it Good. without it being Good. heavy handed at all. It was just that some of the turns of phrase, I was like, yeah, this is a dude who pays attention, you know, and, and has spent some time observing and thinking. So, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Rich. I think there was a lot that was processed there and I'm not often a fan of post-apocalyptic because bleak can be hard um for me but i i just there was such it was you know there were some rough scenes in there but it also was just such an interesting little uh i don't i don't need i don't know was it hope rich i mean it just there was just something positive about it but um. i i think so yeah because um you know the main character it's kind of like her her journey and even you know even the hard things that she's faced with you know she kind of you know takes back power for herself in a way like without getting too deep into like the whole story and like spoiling it it's kind of you know her taking control of her own life rather than the system that she was in 
It sounds yeah. it sounds really worthwhile, and it sounds like it's coming at that post apocalyptic hellscape in because it, it's really easy to make a hellscape, but it's it's hard to create an actual hell because everybody's hell is different, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think that's. I think that's a big part of it as, as far as like, you know, what gets processed in horror and how all those things are. I, because with horror, it seems to me like whatever gets processed, whatever gets put through, whatever feelings are are dealt with, it's not ever straight on. It's not ever this is this and this is how we feel about this and this is what happened. It's by the time it gets put onto, into horror, it's been refracted so many times and thought around corners and applied to all the different ways. So I feel like in a lot of ways, it's a great way to process without having to face it head on constantly. And as a way, right, and as a way of assembling the pieces of a tragedy without, the edges are still sharp, but you can you can find a way to deal with them without having your hands also full of blood. Um, earlier today, I had, had posted on my socials about seeing Night of the Living Dead for the first time when I was a kid and my sister took a bunch of, of the cousins to the drive-in and at the beginning of the night, she said, if you guys scream and act crazy, I'm going to put you out of this car. And by the end of the night, we were literally all crammed in the front seat. Some of us were in tears. We were just, Oh my gosh, this movie, you know, we had no, and there, there was no way to prepare for a film like that because it, there was no film like that. And I remember being, you know, scared and it's so scary and it's gory and these, all these terrible things are happening. But the end of the movie where the main character does everything right and he's resourceful and smart and he saves as many people as he can. And he just gets casually shot dead at the end. And to this day, I can remember the shock of watching that and thinking, okay, and I, I would not have had the words for it. I was, was too young, but it completely formed my own opinion and attitude towards authority from that day to this. And it's one of the greatest works of art I've ever encountered because it completely shaped an important an important way that we interact with the world, right? It's like I have never trusted authority from that day to this because it was so visceral. And he went there. I mean, he had, Romero had the guts to go there. And people who maybe have not seen it or care, oh, it's a zombie movie. It's like, oh, honey, no, no, no. It's, it is telling you something about life. It's telling you something about being human. And people had some, some good comments earlier today. And one of them was saying that it can still be as painfully relevant as it is now. You know, that's what makes it art too, because it, it is speaking to something completely human that will never change. That, that, that is always going to be there. And we're always going to have to understand why authority wants to exercise itself on other people or animals or the natural world or whatever, where does, you know, where does that come from? Where does that 
urge to control come from and what do we do about it and yeah if you if you tell someone i mean that that's where the the attitude sometimes against horror fiction horror art whatever comes from that sort of dismissal that it, oh it's only about this oh, it's only about that it's like no, it's it's like any other art. If it's really art, you'll know it, right? It's going to leave a mark. It's going to be indelible for you. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, and like you said, a lot of people, I think, they just look at, like, the surface things about, like, you know, monsters or ghosts or whatever. But there's a ton of, there's a ton of genre films out there that, you know, kind of incorporate stuff that, we deal with on a day-to-day basis or, you know, just horrors of society. It's just filtered through kind of a, a different lens, kind of like, well, one of my favorites is, uh, tigers are not afraid by, uh, Issa Lopez, I think is how you say her mm-hmm. name. And like, I love that because she kind of blended, you know, the real world, with you know some of these fantastical elements to it so yeah i think like a lot of people they just have they kind of bring preconceived notions to it and just look at it at the surface you know even if there is you know a message underneath all that stuff and it can be something as simple the example that i always use is mr james who i love mr james and i remember reading some of his stories when I was a kid and being, and the great thing about reading stuff when you're a kid, because you're still developing your shit detector, right? So you'll literally read anything. It doesn't even matter. You'll just read it. And as time goes on, you start realizing, Oh, I don't like this or I do like this. And then later still you start saying, well, why don't I like this? Or why do I like this? But I remember reading an MR James story where the protagonist is going to sleep in this strange environment and he puts, he's trying to get comfortable and he puts his hand under the pillow and there's a mouth under the pillow with teeth and that's it. And he quite properly pulls his damn hand back. And I, I have never gotten over that because it's a detail that's so monstrously strange, but so very small, right? I mean, it doesn't like come out and try to ravage him or, you know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, if something like that can happen, all <laughs> bets are off. That's man. right. Anything can happen to anybody at any time. And those simple things like that are really, for me, um, those little seemingly almost insignificant things are what make horror for me. That's what uh, that story lives in me because of that one thing. Yes. Um, Izzy Lee's short film Ensmith lives in me because of a very, very similar, very small detail, you know, that had to do with that unexpected little shock to your system that never leaves you, you know. And that's and that's what I don't like about any and any film. I mean, we'll we'll talk about horror because that's what we're talking about. But any film that has something shattering. The, the characters encounter something that either makes no sense or is is, a, is something like that. Like, what the fuck? And then they just yeah. kind of go on. You know, that would be enough for me. One mouth under the pillow would set me up for life, okay? I would never have to say, 
that can't be. It's like, okay, if that could happen, anything could happen. I'm going to believe anything from here on out. And it takes us a minute as a species to process shit. You don't just go, oh, my God, there's a monster in the backyard. Well, let's do this. Going, right. What? <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. First you, first you go, uh, where's the liquor? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> what exactly you're saying wait a minute you you've just thrown a giant monkey wrench into what i know as reality so first i'm going to call you a liar and go it is not exactly then if you make me come uh, to the window and look and i see that there is in fact a monster in the backyard i'm going to stand there for a minute and look I, like what what you t- the same way in movies where people go i'm so sorry but joe blow is dead everyone goes oh No, you don't. When they come and tell you someone's dead, the first thing you say is no. No, they're not. I mean, your your mind throws up that bolster for a second to give you, you know, that breath and a place to hang on to before you take it in. You don't start processing right away, even when you know they're going to die. Even if it's, you know, at the end of a long illness, there's still that moment like, are you sure? Because you you can't take it in. You can't you can't process it that quickly it takes repeated exposure to the idea so if there is an actual monster in the backyard it is going to take me quite a while to come to grips with that and even if it's a good monster yeah maybe especially maybe especially if it's a good monster (laughs) because how do you get your brain around that i really am fucking crazy if this guy's good to me (laughs) right you're like (laughs) Like in, in Pan's Labyrinth, which is one of the greatest horror movies yeah. ever. Oh, my God. What a film. And you never know if the fawn is good or bad. You're like, OK, the pale man. I OK, that I can tell. But is this fawn on her side? Is it a good fawn or a bad fawn? What a and what a film that yeah. is. What a what a mind. What a visceral and the, the the hardest things to watch in that movie is the human cruelty. Isn't the that the stuttering a... guy? Remember the stuttering guy? Oh God, yes. Jesus yes. Christ, right? Um, yes. I'll let you go if you don't stutter, and you know damn well he's not going to let that guy go. But of course <laughs> the guy has to go for it because what else can he? Oh my Lord! Uh, yeah, fifty pale mans aren't as bad as that. Nah, that and that just. That kind of stuff lives with you, and he's he's a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker for that very reason. Uh, no slouch as a writer either. No, no, I know, no. He's he's the full package. He's got it all. He's yeah. got everything. So I'm not sure what the hell that was. It sounded like a bag of Doritos or something. <laughs> um. Eating is rude not to share. Uh-uh. You're supposed to share with all of us. Really? <laughs> Everybody? Don't bring gum to class if you don't have enough. <laughs> like you're gonna, right? Oh, I just have, to have 30 pieces of gum, right? Exactly. Yeah, I brought a, I brought a case. <laughs> um. So, uh. Uh, awkward segue anyway mm-hmm. um i would like to hear you talk some about the history of the cipher um i know what 1990 91 had the foresight to publish that great book and the 
poor insight to change Funhole to Cypher because Funhole is fucking great. But <laughs> it's a pretty would, great title. I would, it is. <laughs> I, I I have to start out by giving enormous props to Gene Cavellis, who was the genius editor of that line. And Gene worked her ass off. Okay, she worked her ass off to make to to really put her her artistic money where her mouth was, and the you know the money too, because the the whole mandate of that thing was. You know, uh, we're all kind of tired of of the regular sort of, you know, commercial horror novels that we've been getting. And we really want to do something different. And she really meant it. And she really consistently sought out. There are so many good writers that she published and she really had a house style in that you could feel pretty certain that whatever you were getting with that imprint was going to be something that you would be interested to read, even if it was not, if it was not your favorite book or not your favorite byline, you would still give it a chance yeah. because she was doing something different and she really meant it. And it was a lot of work and I, I give her all props for that. I had a lot of fun working with Jean. In fact, Jean is the only person I've ever gotten into a cab with and said, follow that cab. So, <laughs> awesome. really great. you never yeah, forget never that. that like, Me neither. This is so cool. <laughs> but, well, the, the book itself um, came about. I had written a short story um, called Distances that a science fiction story that got a fair amount of attention. And my agent at the time suggested that I might want to think about um, expanding that into a novel. And, you know, look at it and see if there's there's more to do there. And I did look at it and there wasn't more to do there. But while I was doing that, I there was a, a peripheral character that I started to become interested in. And that person turned out to be Nicholas in the cipher. And I realized he belonged in a completely different book and this didn't have anything to do with anything. And I started to follow him, which is pretty much my MO for anything that I do is it, it's a character. And I say, oh, that person is interesting or something is interesting happening to him or to her or to them. Well, I'm going to follow that and see what happens. And then the, the rest of the story just kind of follows along and, and kind of accretes around it like a, like a pearl. Right. And Nicholas, once Nicholas found his soulmate, Nakoda, who I will say for the record, for, for people who have read the book, people are very harsh to her because she's a very decided personality. She's she's not the easiest person to like, but I have a lot of sympathy for her because she knows what she wants and she goes after it. And I I give her a lot of props for that. But once that those two characters got together and the, the idea of the, of the fun hole came to be, um, I wrote the book and I gave it to my agent who said, well, Kathy, if you have the balls to write this, I have the balls to sell it. And he did. And I was really pleased. I didn't understand as well as I did later, um, what, what a gift it was to be able to lead off a line like that because the book got a lot of exposure 
and attention that it might not ever have, you know, have received. And I learned about the power of genre too, which I'd known a little bit about from, from science fiction writing. But when people are friendly to a genre, they will be friendly to you, even if they don't know you or know your work or they're willing to give you a chance because you're both in the same room and they figure, okay, if you're in this room with me, then I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. And that was a, a huge gift to to have readers, you know, for a first novel, to have readers be able to, to kind of meet you there was pretty great. And I was pretty happy. And I'm still happy. I'm I'm thrilled that the book is getting this much attention and, and love and acclaim uh, for the second time around. Yeah. Yeah. And when it drops, pup, drops mass market i have a feeling people are gonna just dive on it because so many people are when do i get to read this when do i get to read this Uh, to the point that i mean i'm hyper 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 focused on not saying anything to spoil anything because i think if i even mentioned someone stepping off a curb that i'd be just (laughs) (laughs) yeah That kind of that kind of led me to a question I was going to ask you, Kathy. And, um, you know, kind of it's kind of interesting because, you know, like you said, the cipher started the Delibis line and it kind of it kind of took like on almost like this mythic quality to like people who are fans of horror literature. And it had been out of print for a while. And I was just kind of curious now that it's coming back out to print, you know, kind of what are your feelings about it, you know, being more widely available now and kind of, you know, how is it different than when you released it the first time, especially now that you've kind of, because I know like sometimes writers say when they write it, they kind of put it out there and then, you know, they kind of move on. But I was just curious if, you know, the feelings were a little bit different now that it's going to be more widely available and you know that you've kind of had some time versus when you first put it out there for people. Well, it's really, and it's, it's, I mean, anything that I could say, I'm trying not to do any spoiler alert type things, but it is very different to me now to I recently listened to it. Um, Crossroad Press did a gorgeous version, an audio version, which if you know and love the book, you will really like this. If it's, it's a translation. It's the, the best kind of audio because it's a real performance, a real translation. And I got to listen back to that and kind of experience it newly because that's a, a format it has has never been in and it's never had an audio edition and i thought this is a really fucking funny book i laughed so many there are moments in it that are just this sort of black slapstick high comedy that I and you know people might look at it afterwards and go you're a liar it's not funny I thought it was funny okay there are parts in it that I did not realize are as funny as they are and and I'm hoping that it will because in in a way the the book is set in in its in its period and it has its 
you know, all the accoutrement of that setting there, it has not been updated. It has not been, you know, changed. Nothing about it is different, but I think that experience that it can offer um, people, people who have read the book fall into two camps and one is bigger than the other, but the smaller camp always says, would you ever write a sequel? And the answer to that is that it would not be possible. That would not be possible to, to go any further into that particular book, into that particular narrative than I already have. I mean, you, once you, once you have encountered the fun hole, that's about as far as you're going to go. That's, that's your impact yeah. right there. Yeah. And, and, and the other, the other larger group knows that, that, that there could be no sequel, but actually there, the only way there could be a sequel to that book would be to retell the entire book from Nakota's point of view. And that would be the only, only way that you could, could go any further. into that. that would be fucking fascinating. Pardon me. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I agree too, only because like Kathy had said that, you know, people kind of uh, give her a raw deal in the story. So it'd be interesting to kind of take like a deeper look in the, you know, her, her inner monologue, so to speak. Right. And to see how did she experience um, one of my YA books, I've written seven YA novels that some people have read and some people who know me from other stuff. It's really fun because I've done a lot of different work in a lot of different arenas and genres and people who know me from one might not know anything about my other work. And so it's always fun when they find out. And like the people who read my Victorian sex puppet novels are like, wait, what you used to write for teenagers? Wait, like, no, really, they're they're good books, too. And one of them is called Buddha Boy. And it's about a, a young man who is paired with kind of the school freak to do some to do a project and he and and another boy are supposed to work with this kid and our viewpoint kid is like i don't want to do this and the other kid bails he's like i'm not working with that kid but they end up striking up a friendship and the the first boy is ruthlessly bullied by another kid in the school and his you know counterparts and People had asked about a sequel to that book, too. And I said, the only way I could write that would be from the bully's point of view, the bully's point of view, because that would turn the story inside out. It's a totally different story then. And but that I'm not saying these are things I would ever do. I'm saying that that's the only way to approach that. Some stories can never never have a sequel. But I think I think it's a testament to. You know, the, the whole conceit of the of the cipher slash the fun hole is that there's this hole in the floor that doesn't go through to the other side. So what's the deal? And people's reaction to that is what makes the novel and in within the pages and without, because it's sort of like an endlessly it's like a, having a. a rotten tooth or something right where or some kind of problem in your mouth that you can't see but you're always kind of touching it with your tongue and going is that a cavity is that like 
some hideous tumor. What is that? You can't really see it, but you can't leave yeah. it alone, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's a pretty a pretty interesting thing that you'd said because um, I'm fairly new. Like I had just gotten a hold of the cipher. I think last year, and then I actually just finished up Bad Brains today, and ah. that was that was, you know, I really love the Cipher. It's probably one of my favorite horror books, but I'd say I probably like Bad Brains as much, if not more. But I I always like how kind of both of those books, you know, there is something weird at play in both. But they're both kind of like heavily psychological type novels. And I really like the way you kind of approach that, you know, versus some other types of psychological horror that's out there. I, I just found it like really interesting. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting to watch these people evolve. And like you almost kind of, for me anyway, like the kind of possibly weird things that happen it's almost kind of secondary to like how these people kind of cope with, you know, what they're dealing with. And if you take the, the basic premise of both those books, you know, completely straight and serious that, OK, this whole is a thing that could happen. And in, in Bad Brains, the idea is a guy uh, has a very sad and stupid injury. And because of that, he starts to see things that may or may not be neurologically based. And you can read it either way. You can read it. I mean, all the things that he does and the things that happen to him, you can straight up read as this is true or this is something that only he is seeing. Um, I remember one of the great touchstone books for me is Wuthering Heights. I will probably be buried with a copy of Wuthering Heights if I was going to be buried, but I'm not. But if I was, I would. And I remember reading that as a kid and I go back to that year after year after year and I always learn something or get something new out of it. But the first time I realized that the character the who's telling us the story, who's telling the reader the story, could be completely full of shit and possibly malignant it blew the top of my head off i'm like oh my god nelly is a liar oh my god this changes every single thing about the story and the same way when i read haunting of hill house when i sat down afterwards after repeated readings that's another book i can read like fifty thousand times and it will always frighten me like a lot but realizing, wow, Eleanor's the bad guy. Eleanor's the bad guy in this. God, it changed the whole entire book. It's like, oh, the poor victim. Oh, Eleanor, all these terrible things. Then you're like, oh, Eleanor, you're, you're not who I thought you were. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, that's where the real engagement lies, right? Because then you can go back and look and say, all these feelings I was having for you and about your plight and whatever is now I'm seeing you in a very different way and I'm seeing everything that happened in a different way that when you give a reader room, cause it, it amazes me always and just humbles me in a really delightful way. The way people will bring things to your work 
that you had no idea were there, but they find them because they are bringing most of it with them. And I had given a talk at a, um, a high school and, a, you know, quote unquote, alternative high school. And those are my favorite high schools because those are all the, you know, I, I consider myself a lifelong resident of the, the island of misfit toys, right? And all the, the places where the kids are different or there might be discipline problems or whatever, whatever, I those are my favorite schools. And I love to go give talks there. And they had read one of my YA books called The Blue Mirror, which is about a young woman who is, she has a, a bad home situation. Her mother's drunk and she kind of has to take care of mom and She's not really into school. And what she really likes to do is take her, her sketchbook and go downtown and hang out in this one coffee place called the Blue Mirror, where the, the manager is nice to her and lets her like just buy one coffee and hang out all day. And then she meets this really charismatic guy there. And we're seeing that there's something wrong with this dude. And she's not seeing it because she doesn't have the experience. And so the whole book is, is, is Maggie going to, you know, twig to what is this guy's issue and is she going to be able to get away? And so I took this, this book, that's the the book I'm going to speak to these young people about. And their teacher said, well, they're, they're really excited to have an author because we don't often, you know, get class visits because sometimes sidebar, those kinds of schools are not first on the list to get things and it's like usually the oldest building in the district whatever that's a different rant but I went to their to their classroom and she had sent me an email and said well here are some of the questions that the the kids have written down for you to answer and I opened this email and there were like 30 questions and they were all insanely good I'm like oh my god this is great and one of the questions was you there's a cat character cat is not harmed by the way cat is fine there's a cat character in the book. The Maggie has this cat, and one of the kids said, "Was well, the name of the cat? Does it have significance? Because in, in you know in Egyptian mythology, the cat is considered divine, and this name could also be considered that." And I'm going, "Wow, no, actually, I had no idea any of that was true." But you're absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, of course, of course, you're right. That, but I didn't know that was in there. But you knew right? You knew it was in there. And that stuff happens all the time with when readers are really engaged with a book, they're bringing this vast storehouse of their own, you know, experience and knowledge to what you're doing. Those are the, that's the reason to write is to create that kind of, I mean, talk about immersive, right? That's, that's immersion. They're bringing everything they, that's why I always believe the book finds the reader. I, that's my religion. If I have a religion, that's it. The book finds the reader. I agree. I agree. Um, And that's kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing, how things just kind of fall into place like that when it's, um, I just totally lost my thought because I had too many of them in my head at one time. I apologize. I know. It's like a pinball. I do that, too. Yeah. Uh, badly. Badly. It was. It had something to do. Josh and I recently uh, worked on that Carpenter's Farm thing together. Right. Um, and it was, we were both fascinated. All three of us are um, what we call our musician now. 
um, Chris Campbell was there too in that one of us would create a part and it would somehow inform the other person's part without them really realizing it did or vice versa. And it was kind of like, you know, we were just playing music together. We were, we were a band, you know, and we just riffed off each other. And I'd find things in my poems that were there prior right. to the same similar thing coming up in a chapter of Josh's and a totally unplanned things, you know. So it was fascinating. It was magical, you know. And it's like you're all kind of swimming in the same river without knowing that you would meet there not planning so much of it is completely unplanned and you i mean in and in any any creative process is going to what is gonna you understand there's a river there somewhere but you are not the river you are not making the river you are allowed to be part of the river and the river is going to go where it goes. Um, the only times, the only real struggles I have had writing anything novels um, is when I tried to fight that and try to impose something on the book that it just wasn't having it. It's like, you are either going to do what is in this and that, you know, not everything you start is successful either. Not everything I start is successful. Um, within 10 feet of where I'm sitting, there is a closet at the end of the hall. And inside that closet are horrible monsters. No, inside that closet are... <laughs> are I just thought of it. It's like, it is a closet at the end of the hall, isn't it? Actually, it's a stairway to nowhere. It's great. When we awesome. first bought this house, we were like, the realtor's going, well, here's this thing, and it's this stair. They they had made it into a two-family house, so they blocked up. This would be the back stairs, but we opened the door, and we're like, a stairway to nowhere? Wow, that's a selling point. <laughs> this, <laughs> is, this is I like, good, that, this right? is better than a fun hole. I know, right? <laughs> do these stairs really go to nothing? Wow, they do. That's great. But anyway, in that stairway to nowhere closet, it, there are manuscripts that never got past a certain point because I either was trying to fight the material or I didn't have the the wherewithal, the creative wherewithal to make that thing come alive. And the first time it happened to me, it just blew my mind. I'm like, oh, I'm going to make this work. You know, it's like, I'm going to keep running at this wall as hard as I can. I'll fix you wall. You know, it's like the wall's yeah. like, you know, <laughs> Sometimes Sometimes a wall is a wall and there's nothing you're going to do to get it. Yeah, yeah, right. You're like, you know what? You can do this all day long and that wall is not going to move an inch. Yeah, your head's going to get off a fucking sore soon. Eventually, you're going to stop. So you can either stop sooner or later, you know, and and just accept that it's, it's a wall and either you find a way to climb over it or walk away because it, it can't change. So, but I didn't know that. So it was a great lesson to have, although I was terrible and I felt very bad. It was like a year of my life trying to you know make this thing that just would not be made. So. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks too. I, I see. We kind of have the benefit of foreknowledge here because we talk to so many brilliant people like you and you tell us, yeah, I bloodied my fucking head trying to break through that wall. And we go, don't ever do that. Yeah, real. I know. You know, so I've already trashed several things willingly 
based on that info being given to me a couple of different times. Like, yep, nope, hit that wall too many times, just go around. <laughs> and it's hard to do, too, because you have, yeah. I mean, you, you have a feeling for what you're doing. You have, you feel like, okay, I can, I, I like this, I want to make this live. And not knowing why you can't make that happen. Usually the sign is if you're doing 400 drafts and they're all bad, right? It's like, if it's not getting better after a certain point, it's never going to get better. You got to put that thing down. But it it is a hard lesson to learn. Um, Dark Factory that I'm working on now has taken me so long to do because I was at war with the format for such a long time trying to figure out. It's like groping, you know, with your hand in the junk drawer in the dark, trying to figure out, okay, this, where is it? No, that's not it. That's not it. That, oh, this is, no, that's not it. And it's really frustrating because you know the right, you know there's a confluence somewhere, but you don't know where it is. And you won't know because it's something you've never done before. You just yeah. don't know till you try. And that's why all, all like biopics of artists and writers and whatever are always they always have like 10 minutes of interspersed in the film where the person is like actually working where mostly you're just sitting, staring at shit for hours. At a time, <laughs> right. Which is really bad. I understand no one wants to look at that, but you don't like crumple up a piece of paper and throw it on the floor. You're like, fuck. And then you sit there yeah. for four more hours and you're like, fuck. And then another four hours goes by. But it is, it's, it, to be able to do something well too is sometimes your downfall because you think, okay, I'm, I've been doing this reasonably well for a long time. I should be able to make X, Y, Z work. And sometimes you're not going to make X, Y, Z work and your, your craft becomes kind of a, I don't want to say an enemy that's too strong, but it, it, it's like saying I'm a really good chef so I can put together a meal and it will be edible no matter what. You're at the point in your your chefhood where anything you make will not poison people. You're you're good enough to do that, but it still won't be what you're trying to do and it won't be good and nourishing. Right. It will be a thing, but it won't be the right thing. So and it's not the right thing until it's the right thing to you. Right, right. because right and you you're never going to get if I can get 80% of what I was shooting for, I'm happy because there will always be, you're never as good as you hope you could be. Right. And you're always trying to get better. But if I can hit 75, 80% of what I was shooting for, then I got to call it a win because it's, it's literally the best I can do. Yeah. That's kind of your art kind of does what it does and you just keep pushing it. That's, but that's what makes authors like you, Mallerman, Paul Tremblay, um, a zillion indie authors I can name. Um, favorite authors is that when, every, like, you pick up the cipher and you go, this book is fucking amazing, right? And then you listen to Skin, which I've been doing recently, and go, whoa, she really upped her game here, you know? Mm-hmm. And then talking to Rich, same thing. She massively upped her game here with Bad Brains. It's a whole different thing, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. And that to us says these are authors who care about what they're writing. It means something to them, and they make it mean something to me, and so immediate you know ends to add to favorites because of that approach that you believe you can get better so you try to continually get better and there you can that's why when when you read something that really blows you away um in this uh, 
this edition of the cipher has an afterword by a writer I really love. I love her work and I love her too in real life. Um, Maurice Meyer is an amazing writer and her work is incredible. Her voice is not like anyone else's and her work is, is deceptively calm. Her great gift is she can do god-awful things and start with completely bizarre premises and by the time it's over you will utterly not only will you believe it you will just it's become totally normal to you and you're happy about it um she has a new book coming out this fall called the seventh mansion and it's about a young idealistic man who falls in love with a skeleton an actual fucking skeleton like bones right and it's so great i read it in manuscript and i just love this book and it isn't like anything else and that is that's my highest praise so i heartily invite everybody to run right out and get it when it's available her name is maurice meyer m-e-i-j-e-r and it's the seventh mansion and it's interesting because it's coming out from uh, Ferris Strauss Giroux FSG Originals, and which is not uh, a house or an imprint that would be known for putting out much, you know, quote unquote horror. But I find the not just because it's a skeleton, okay, but because so much in this book is about what it what decay means what does it mean to be of the earth what does it mean to be alive and those are very much very very horary you know tropes and and places to to walk the same way that some people have said um velocities my new book of stories um they're like well some of these stories are they're technically not horror stories but all the stories in the book all hang together which made me very happy I have to say because I chose them with a lot of care and I really thought it's like an old school album right where you put things together to be experienced in a certain order and I really wanted them to have resonance next to each other and they're all over the map as far as, as, you know, some are historical fiction, some are straight up horror, some are weird fiction, whatever, but that they, that they do go together, that people have experienced them as, as being part of one thing has been really gratifying. I'm really glad. Um, yeah, that's, uh, something else that I was going to bring up. I'm sure all of us were, and I'll shut up and let somebody else talk, but, um, was your your short work um it seems you've got that's your second collection now right velocities and the first one i've read a couple of times and i never remember the title of it extremities yes but you have a large body of short work out there still that is yet to be collected is that correct heck yeah yeah. Do you, well, who's collecting it then right now? I mean, somebody better get on that shit. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of one of the reasons a couple people have said people have said, but a couple people have said, well, this is only your second collection in like 4000 years. Are you going to, you know, 
get on the stick maybe and get some of those others. Why didn't you make it a bigger? Why isn't, why isn't it a more comprehensive collection? And I have a, I, I understand the, I understand that it would be good to collect the stories and one day there will be an E edition. I am sure of that. That will have all of it, all the short fiction including the story of mine that no one has ever read called, it was my uh, submission story when I went to the Clarion workshop and no one's ever read that thing. It's called happy hmm. birthday, Kim white. It's a good story. Good luck finding it. No one can find it. Ah. It doesn't matter. It's a good, it's a good story. <laughs> well, as soon as you finally decide you need a beta reader, here I am. <laughs> so, well, the problem with putting all those stories together in one place though yeah. is that is like a lot of koja at once. I think it might be too much koja at once. I had I, no problem with velocities. At the, well, yeah. I think the length was perfect. I, I didn't want it to be a lot longer for that reason, because there's only so much you can ask people to take in in one sitting, right? And having like the collected works and like drop it on the desk with like a thump, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. But there are yeah. other stories that have not, have not been collected in one day. One day we'll put them all together and probably in an E edition would probably be the easiest. It will take some of that thump out of the, of the desk. Yeah. Make it less intimidating if you can hold it in a digital device instead of in a, in a, um, you know, engine mount or something. And less <laughs> exhausting, right? Exactly. I mean, some of the really great compendiums. I and I'm blocking on the the editor, and I'm too lazy to get up and go in another room. It's called Blackwater, and it's about um, basically weird fiction, but it's from the '80s. Really, really interesting collection. Really cool collection, but it's so big. And it might scare, it might scare you away. Not you, but you know, the general, yeah. you might go, Ooh, that's a lot. I don't know if I want to read all that. Especially or, now. Right. And I, cause we all live in short attention span world. Yeah. And, and, but what, one of the things I was happy about putting velocities together was the chance to say, well, what story goes now? You know, which story goes together? And some of these stories are old. Some of these are new. Some of these are, a couple are, you know, had not been published before. And it was, it's hard to look at your own work objectively. Not because it's like your child and you think it's perfect, but because you're not, especially things that you, you know, have written before and they're, you know, they're done and, and you have never considered them as part of another thing, right? It's a short story. It appeared many of these stories um, first saw life because of Ellen Dallow. Ellen, you know, invited me to, to contribute to this or that anthology that she was putting together. And because of that, some of these stories came alive and, and other editors too, as well, who you know commissioned stuff or invited me to be part of stuff. But to put them all together, it's like the linking monkey game, right? Whatever that's called, barrel of monkeys. Where I you remember that. Yeah. Yeah. What a horrible game, though, if you think about it. You 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 cannot make. There's no way. There's no way you're going to do more than what like stick yeah. seven monkeys at a stretch. Uh, 
That's that game, lot. yeah, it was designed to babysit children. It's but it's a cruel <laughs> game, right? You're like, here, make this work, and the kids are like, this doesn't fucking work. What are you? Are you trying to like teach me about life or something? What yeah, are you actually doing with this game? Literally, what the fuck? Why don't you give me a Rubik's cube or something easy? <laughs> I know, right? A Rubik's cube and a hammer, man. Why, exactly. why are we this game? Exactly. <laughs> I'm taking notes for Chinese next birthday, actually. <laughs> Rubik's the babysitting hammer. Thing, huh? <laughs> yeah, um, either one, really. I have a feeling, though, that if I gave him, like, a game that was a lesson in futility, he would, I don't know, like, commission a rocket with it. He would do something that was unintended and probably destructive, so. <laughs> that's good, though. That's what yeah, you should do with something like that. Good and creative. Yeah, let's destroy this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make something no one's ever seen before. You exactly. know the story, and I'm I can't remember the writer's name because I just can't remember things anymore. Um, it's called Mimsy Were the Boar Groves. It's a, a famous science fiction story from way back in the day, and the the conceit in that story is that this weird box of toys shows up at these people's house, and there are three kids in the family, and the two older ones. They like the toy. They're just weird. They're not like dangerous. They're just odd. No one can figure out what to do with them. But the little one figures it out really fast. And after a certain point, the grownups realize, okay, these toys came from somewhere else where they operate on a very different logic system than we do. And that's why the little one was so fast, because the little one isn't 100% plugged into this world logic yet, right? This kid is living a liminal state because she's only three years old and she figured out how to put the toys together and then all the kids just disappear. Like, oh, fuck. Where'd the kids go? We're never going to get those kids back. Because the little one's like, whoa, if you put this thing with this thing, kablamo, and they all disappear. (laughs) I know in my... In my house, when my kids were little, if they all disappeared, there was something desperately wrong. So well, be there's, afraid. Yeah, there's that too. You're like, okay. <laughs> sorry. It's real quiet in right. here. Why is it so quiet? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> of course, that you know, often my wife could probably say the same thing about me. Shit, he got quiet. He's <laughs> so quiet about. What are you thinking about over there? Yeah. Right. Or when you can't find the cat for like 45 minutes, you're going, okay. <laughs> Where did you go? Where are you? I know you're somewhere. What are you going to make me pay for this time? Yeah. No, I know, right? I know. Well, what 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 are you reading now that you're loving and that you want other people? I'm always I always like to ask people who are well read, what are you reading and loving? Because I'm always missing things, and even though the I'm I'm reckless, the TBR pile is high, but I don't care. I'm reckless. What do you got? Oh, if I were going to jump on one author, one name out of the blue, it would be Caitlin Starling and The Luminous Dead. Um, brilliant, 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 brilliant novel. Um, debut novel, fascinating and beautiful. Um, very empowering and very uplifting and very terrifying. And uh, I recommend anything she does. I'm reading us second one now that's coming out soon that is also is easily as brilliant so that's mine oh cool beans yeah that's i i would i would second that hers is that's awesome and i i loved the um 
Um, I just blanked on the name of the second one. It's through Neon Hemlock. What is the name of it? Um, uh, Yellow Jessamine. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I can remember Neon Hemlock, but not Yellow Jessamine. Yeah, yeah. she's she's excellent. And um, also uh, Samantha Kolyesnik's uh, True Crime um, was a debut this year. That was just incredible. Very brutal, uh, but very, very excellent. Um, it's, it's wonderful, all these badass women writers now out yeah. there. I love it. Yeah, the I agree with Laurel. The Samantha Koyesnik's book, True Crime, that's that's still like one of my favorite books that I've read so far this year. And then um, I also really enjoyed Stephen Graham Jones' new one, The Only Good Indians. Oh, yeah. What a great yes. cover, too, on that. Wow. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the texture on that cover, it's just fascinating me. I'm all about texture, and I could sit there and feel that cover for hours. Um, but the, the antlers feel like antlers to me. So. Yeah, that's a no. That's super, and it's a really simple image too. And I know that that's one of the not worries, but one of the concerns that we had when we knew that we were going to bring the cipher out again, it's like people really loved that Marshall Ayersman cover and it was super iconic and people remember it. And, and how can we reference, reference that in a way, but also make it completely different. And because this is a completely different edition and, so it was fun to go through the different iterations of that cover because a cover makes such a huge difference. It's in that's what comes up in your mind when you your, your mental catalog and a really great simple cover is like a really great haiku. It's not easy to do. Yeah, and you did it. You guys nailed it with this. But I mean, yeah. it's a testament to to both. Uh, um, your eye and Trisha's commitment to putting out a quality product, no matter what it is she's working on. She is amazing. Um, yeah, God. I love Trisha Reeks. I, yep. I've been so happy with Meerkat, and I love to see the diversity of what she's working on. And you never, that's another, I mean, in a, in a way that takes us back to the beginning. It's a, a you have the sense of a particular, you know, editorial house style, house focus, house. Everything will be different, but you're interested to see what she's going to do next because you know that the bar is high and yeah. it's going to be something you're interested in. Yeah, this one is actually they did. You did such a great job on this cover that it, it even looked good with an extra pair of hands added in. Yeah, they were kind of great. <laughs> Because <laughs> I take terrible dad photos, so I'm right yeah. there. <laughs> you know, it could very well have a phone in it. And someone had asked me that, and she's like, what would happen if, like, the fun hole was now? I'm like, you know that Nakota would be live streaming that shit, and that right. is a, just a whole different story, right? Really, really different. You, that definitely was a product of the time, um, which yeah, is great, too, though, because people are so obsessed with, um, like, 80s cinema right now on the book. Yeah. It had kind right. of vibes on that with while still having a literary tone to it. And the the that's why we were very very careful and and subtle with the idea of distortion on the cover but it is that very like bad videotape distorted kind of grainy look that weird words there and not quite there and it references 
the the video that is shown in the book. So there are a lot of little things like yeah. that that and yeah, Trisha thinks of everything, which is is that's yeah. why she's so much fun to work with. She yeah, and I've I've discovered some of my favorite authors in the business right now through her. Not necessarily all horror because she does things all over the board, but right um all beautiful all perfectly executed you know she's got an eye and an ear and she's also willing she also it seems listens to her creators it's very collaborative i mean it's a very which is what in in the in the best moments that i've had in publishing and i've been published by a lot of different houses um the best the best moments and the best you know product too comes out of a collaborative effort where you're yeah. all trying to do my, the, the YA editor that I worked with Francis Foster was very much a legend in, in children's publishing. And because it was her own imprint, there was one less layer of you know bureaucracy above her. So she was able to make a lot of decisions and she and I tussled more than once over the books, but we both knew that we wanted it to be the best book in the world and we were both willing to fight for it and, you know, do the push and pull as much as we had to, to get to the place where we were both satisfied with the book. And that makes, that makes art happen. That enables you, you know, that you have somebody good that you're going to to bring your your work to and you know that they're going to find things maybe that you would not or you know or whatever they're going to put the best literally the best face on i love the cover of velocities i just i love it i love the the feel of it i love the just the vibe the whole vibe of it you're not a hundred percent sure what's happening there's a sense of motion i mean it, the book itself, as a as a print object, works really well. That said, though, I don't know that every piece of, I don't know at this moment that Dark Factory would have a print edition simply because I'm having a hard time with all those other bad examples that I saw. It is hard to figure out how to make something like that work in a print book that would be something you could return to and not go, well, I got through that. Jesus Christ. Wow. That was something. (laughs) And then, you know, put it away and never look at it again. Well, then why does it have to exist as an object at all? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so later, later thought is needed and I'm open to all examples. And if you guys know something that I should be looking at, let me know because even house of leaves, I mean, house of leaves, you have to be into it to read it. And mm-hmm. I'm, I feel guilty about that one because I never could, I never could get into it. I have uh, issues with um, attention as it is. And uh, that thing just made me want to chew on glass. So, <laughs> Well, right, exactly, right? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, and you're trying to make it as welcoming an experience as you can. I think of it in terms of, like, the live, my live events and saying we make things the way they should be, but we're not trying to defeat people participating in this, right? We're not trying to make it so difficult that people are, like, 
oh my God, you know, do I have to train for a marathon to go through this? I mean, I don't want it that bad. Yeah. <laughs> They're, we're here to escape, not exercise. Well, right. We're here to escape, not like have to, you know, go through basic before we yeah. can you know, do the show or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think one cool one that's, you know, it's kind of like House of Leaves and that it kind of plays with like the format, but it's not as uh, difficult to read that you might like is uh, Brian Kirk's Will Haunt You. I don't know if you've read that one. No, but I haven't. There's a lot of really. Yeah, he does some pretty interesting things. Um, and when we talked to him, he kind of almost had a more interactive thing like, um, you know, kind of like you were talking about, but a little bit different. Like he wanted to kind of make it where like you would fill out kind of like a Mad Libs thing. And then it would oh, like neat. it would like put you into the book. But he's like, I think I would get in a lot of legal trouble. So we <laughs> scrapped that idea. <laughs> well, yeah, but exactly. And, and because we're so used to now being interactive with all our different kinds of media, right? We're used to being able to, oh, I'm reading this online and I want to, oh, I don't know what that is. I'm going to stop real quick and search and go, oh, okay, wow, that's really cool. And you're used to being able to kind of stop and start. So you want you want people to feel intuitively how, I mean, we all know how to read a book. You pick it up and you read it or you, you know, you scroll through it or whatever to make the experience seamless is, is always the hardest part. And if there are little places to rest or little places where there's a little surprise or just to get the most out of, of a presented narrative because a, a book can really be anything, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't only have to be a printed object. It can be, as we know, it can be an audio book. It can be an ebook. It can be a lot of things. So why not take advantage of that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, if you're if you're interested on our site, um, he kind of did like a cool interactive thing that ties into the novel. And I, it was spread out across a couple review sites, which they're all linked. But, yeah, I, that's oh, one cool. thing. I, that's one thing I've been interested in and why I'm excited about the Dark Factory, especially is, you know, kind of even too with like the advent of, you know, like ebooks and stuff like that, it kind of opens up like new mediums that, you know, maybe weren't available before that people can kind of mess with. And it's been cool to see people try and take advantage of those. Right. Because they're there. It's just another kind of, it's another art form the same way, you know, back in the day, when, oh, no, we have now we have the printing press, but that means that the stories will be fixed and people won't tell stories anymore and there won't be any more, you know, oh, the stories will all be the same. Oh, no, what are we going to do? It was just another technology. It didn't take away from, a, you know, a verbal storytelling. Having someone tell you a story or read you a story is an amazing experience adults do not get to have things read to them that's why i believe we like audiobooks so much because nobody reads us things anymore and you're just like yay you learned to read okay i can stop reading to you it's like no come back i want you to read it it was good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i would love to do a reading series of dr seuss books for adults and just people just sit down and get a drink and listen to some of these books that are so great and so weird there's a, um, a 
there's a passage, and I don't even remember which one. Again, they're in this room, but I'm literally too lazy to stand up and walk over there. There's a passage in one of the Dr. Seuss books where, and if you remember, you remember the illustration. It's so crazy pants. And these two kids are carrying this giant fucking jar yeah. with this creature in it. Do you remember that? Do you yeah, remember that? I forget his name, but. His name is Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Cat in the Hat, right? And it go, I, is it in Cat in the Hat? Because the, the poem uh, says, look what we found in the park in the dark. We will take him home. We will call him Clark. Nope, that's not. He will live at our house. He will grow and grow. Will our mother (laughs) like this? We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I I hear, I see the illustration, and I can those words resonate with me. But yeah, that's not Cat in the Hat. I don't know. Stone husks and shit, and it might be in Sneetches. I don't know, but it's this one-page thing where you're like, what? The fuck? How are you carrying this thing? And right. You're bring it in the house, and it's like the best part is, well, her mother like this? We don't know. Like, what do we care? Yeah, who the fuck cares? Donna. Donna asked Clark, man. Especially when they say it will grow and grow, and this thing's got death on it like a walrus already. <laughs> Uh, talk about body horror going on know, right, right there. <laughs> now think how great it would be if you were sitting in a bar and you had about four drinks and someone starts reading this to you and you then the lights start getting lower and lower and you're thinking, well, what is that thing anyway? What if it does grow? And there's so many different ways to experience a story and narrative, and I think we need to take advantage of all of them. What an interesting thought, though. You have me sitting here thinking, fuck. Adult Dr. Seuss poetry, man. I'm all over that. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, because I need another project desperately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and two, I only know this because it was like my favorite Dr. Seuss book. Because I remember that picture. It was in uh, One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish. Is it in One Fish, Two Fish? Oh, man. Yeah, because I used to read that like every day when I was little <laughs> for like weeks on end. It's a great book. All those books are great. Yeah. When, or when I had trouble in getting to Sala Salu, where this guy goes through all this incredible, everything goes wrong for this guy. And you're like, and as you, when you read it as an adult, you're like, dude, I feel you. That's exactly <laughs> You go through all this shit and you get to the end of it. It's like, oh, no, then it was closed. Yeah. <laughs> That's wow. that way. It was like George Carlin for children and some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Doctor Sister, even the Cat in the Hat, where it's like, then the mother comes home and she says, "Oh, what'd you guys do all day?" And then the narrator says, "You know, well, what would you say if your mother asked you?" And you know, these kids are gonna lie, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Jamboree with a cat, and it's like, kiss, shut your mouth, don't say yeah. anything. <laughs> probably, probably don't mention thing one and thing two because I that's going right? to flip the trigger. <laughs> too, when you open, and then these guys just start tearing everything up. And the fish is having a stroke. <laughs> I identify with that fish more than any other right. Dr. Seuss character. I, that's what I mean. At the age of five, I probably would have been like, yeah. guys. 
Mm. We're going to get in trouble. Please. You need to stop. Yeah. I know, Mr. <laughs> right? I, I wouldn't have. But what? Yeah, once I had kids, I understood exactly what that fish was going through. I know, right? <laughs> and I was like, fish, just, you know, get off it, all right? We're going to have some fun. He's like, oh, your mother wouldn't like this. And the fish is not wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and your mother would be totally right about it. Yeah. I know, right? It's like, correct me if I'm wrong, but this cat is wrecking the joint. And the poor fish. I know, think of that from the fish's point of view, right? All you can see is through the bowl. And all these horrible things are happening and half your water's on the floor and you're like, this cat is clearly from hell. Okay. <laughs> hell cat up in my house. What can I do to save these poor children? God. <laughs> uh, that just cracks me up. I, you know, the problem is, is if somebody did that, I would sit in that bar and get sloshed listening to them all night long. I know. And it would be so fun. And yes, just, it would. I mean, there are a lot of ways to to having somebody read to you is so magical. And I don't use that word lightly. It's really the confluence between the listener and the reader and the text and whatever atmosphere you're in. Um, we had planned a, an event, a launch event for velocities that because of the pandemic, we weren't able to, to fulfill, but um, Rachel, Harbert, who played the Red Queen, was part of it, and my husband, Rick Leader, the artist, was part of it, and Chad Stocker, who's in the High Strung with Josh, was also part of it, and we were oh, right on the super cool experience that I hope we'll still be able to do, you know, later when life becomes whatever, someday, when things are human again, maybe we can, can do it, but putting together something like that is you know can be as simple as the reader and the listener and the room i mean that's all you really need if the text is is engaging enough and how can you not be engaged by the cat in the hat right right especially if you've got someone telling adult versions of those things and doing it well (laughs) um that would be mesmerizing It would. Like, I, I hope. I hope to do this one day for a, a, an appreciative audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and speaking of which, I'm uh, going to shut up and let Laurel speak and be done here myself because my wife is going to strangle me. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I did my best not to fanboy too much. Um, but I am going to fail at not doing it entirely. Um, when it comes to prose, you're a master. You're my hero. Um, when it comes to poetry, you're my number one influence. Your prose is my number one influence. And where I, fi- I feel that most of my work is most informed by your work. Um, so I am in your debt. And I have a lifelong crush with Kathy Koja and her words. Thank you. That's wonderful to hear. That's very, yeah, very well earned. Actually, this is, this was my first experience with your work was reading the cipher um, because I, I'm, I'm still extremely new on the scene. So it's just, uh, I, you know, definitely don't want to spoil it for anyone coming out in September. Of course, I feel very lucky to have gotten to read it uh, ahead of that. And it's just, I mean, 
it's I, I remember texting, I, I guess, both of uh, both Rich and Shane. At, I'm like, I'm 15 percent in. I feel like so much has already happened and I can't imagine what's going to happen for the rest of it. And it just does. you know. <laughs> it just keeps going. It really does. But <laughs> it's I mean, it's inventive. It's incredible. And when you were talking about the immersive um you know, books, I'm thinking like, God, what would that look like with the fun hole? Oh, wow. <laughs> Wouldn't that be yeah. Oh, that would be I, a fun one to do. It would be. And I, I, yeah, that would be really, I think it would be a challenge, but you would have to do it very, very simply. The simpler, yeah. the better. And which is why I think it would be a, a difficult, through the years, the book has been optioned on and off for film many times. And it would be a really difficult thing to bring to yeah. the screen because the temptation would be to say, let's put people down the phone, you know, Ooh, don't yeah. do that. You know, yeah. It's not going to be fun if you do that. I'll tell you um, that right now. Yeah, I sit here thinking, God, if anybody could pull that off, it'd be uh, Korean filmmakers. Um <laughs> They yeah. seem to have they seem to have the the knack for that sort of off the wall sort of you know, and to to be able to to turn it into because it would have to be a completely visual experience and that too is a retranslation right it, making something into a film it's not the book on film it's a film and it's totally different. Yeah, and just out of curiosity, and you know, you can say you can't answer it or not but i know you've had probably a lot of different options but when i finished bad brains i thought that that would make a great movie and i didn't know if maybe that had ever uh kind of came up as something that you know might be a film one day or no actually not bad brains is one that has never been optioned oh someone has to get on that (laughs) my dream director for that would be del toro because he knows how to handle all the monsters, the human. Oh my the God. Man. Yeah. He, he would be my dream, but the, the best director for it would be the one who sees what it could be as a film and do it as a film. That also is a very funny book. I think there are parts of it that I thought were very funny. Perhaps I'm alone <laughs> in that. I don't know. I no, don't know anyway. Yeah, they're, 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 there are some, yeah. There's a moment where the, the main character goes back to see his mother because he has to. He winds <laughs> yeah. up back at his mother's and he says, what should I say? I'm crazy. I'm broke and I'm back. I'm afraid my mother may have heard that a time or two in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and bless her heart she opens the door anyway right like our that's right she said well you fucking worthless son of a bitch get in here yeah i know come on <laughs> yeah, yeah. he wants something to eat whatever i know yeah it's it's <sighs> and, and horror and humor are very closely allied i think they're very they're two sides of the same coin they're about you know tension and release and that's why they go so well together because yeah. and sometimes you just have to laugh. Things are so awful. You just have to laugh. <laughs> um, that's exactly right. There are things where 
like I read the most horrifying, gruesome, gross novel by J.F. Gonzalez recently, and I, just there are parts where it's like, what are you laughing at this for, dude? You, what a monster you are! <laughs> why am I? No, why do I think this is funny? I know, oh, I know. But oh. it's, it, it hits you, and that and sense of humor, I think people who can write comedy... I am in awe of them to, you know, to set out to really make someone laugh is really difficult because it's so subjective. It's like trying to come up with what, like a perfect, I don't know, like here is something I know you're going to love the taste of. And I, I know a lot of you are going to love the taste of this at the same time. And you're like the, the bravery it takes to try to Mm -hmm. do something like that. My yeah. cat is like, are you still talking? Right. <laughs> because I have not had anything to eat for Christ, I don't know, two hours. What kind that, of monster? Yeah. That cat, that cat just clearly said, every one of these people's fucking listeners now knows you're starving me to death. I know. Like, I hope you're proud of yourself because now everybody knows what kind of a person you really are. Exactly. I have a person who would deny a cat. Food, who only eats, I don't know, nine or ten times a day? What kind of a life is that? <laughs> My dogs always look at me like, you're feeding me this shit again? <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> you like this. There's this great meme of a really cute little cat going... Oh, my human just bought a case of my favorite food. Now I can't like that kind anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I figured you out now. Oh, guess again, bitch. Guess again. (laughs) Yeah, you bring home one can and they love the hell out of it. Bring home 12 and they don't. Right, then it's garbage, right? By the time you open the second, the third can for sure, it's like this still. I don't kill the same animal five times, lady, in case you didn't know that. Okay. It's this different is, every yeah. time. <laughs> this is obviously nowhere near as special as you presented it, or there wouldn't be so goddamn much of it. Exactly. <laughs> if it was that good, why is there so much? Exactly. <laughs> I, <guess> I, got <laughs> <it now. laughs> I paid cash money for that. I went out in the pandemic. That's the only thing I hoarded. I, I admit that I did hoard cat food. As soon as things started to go sideways, I was like, <gasps> I don't care if we starve and have to eat each other, but the cat's got to yeah. eat <laughs> organic food. <laughs> we did the same thing. Everybody else is grabbing bottled water and toilet paper, and we're stuck up on dog food. And I was like, I don't care. I can always wipe my butt with a dirty laundry yeah. and throw it away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not going to go hungry. We have options. This is a damn animal. <laughs> no. The cat hasn't missed a meal in 11 years, and we're not going to start now. <laughs> well, it does bring up the, whatever your inner anxiety is, right? It's like it really does. how bad it gets. This isn't going to happen. Although I will say we never had a toilet paper issue, okay? I don't know if we just live a charmed life or something. Or our dollar store is well stocked, but there was just never a problem. We and have literally things where yeah. people are like fighting hand to hand over the giant packages of it. Yeah, it's terrible. Like my wife and I have been literally having to have it delivered from Florida oh because my God. West West Coast is like everybody went. I'm gonna be shitting every five minutes. <laughs> it's like this doesn't even cause that. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> I was 
in a grocery store buying a roll of it when this was first starting to go down and the clerk said, you won't believe the people coming in here for this. She's like, they think they're going to have explosive diarrhea. <laughs> yeah. The woman behind me in line said, wait, what? It causes diarrhea? Yeah. Oh, no. Do you have any toilet paper left? <laughs> we both turned around and said, no, no, no. It was too late, right? She's like, shit, I got to go back and get some more toilet paper. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's no infection in the supply line, right, people? It's <laughs> I know, I know, but that's where, and it's, I mean, talk about a wonderful trope. It's like, why was that the default thing people went for? Yeah, toilet I mean, paper it, and sanitizer. It had nothing and to do with what this actually does to your body, right? It's not like you're going to be, you know, pooping yourself scrawny. It's, that's not what it does. But people, that was a thing. That was like a comfort item or a comfort totem. Then bottled water, where it's like it didn't affect the water. It's not like they're going to be. It's not like a natural disaster, right? Where all of a sudden there is no water. Very yeah. interesting to see what scared us so much, and yet the normal things. I mean, like I can understand a run on bar soap, okay, mm-hmm. because people bought a lot of soap. Right. And I bought some soap. I'm not proud of it, but I have some soap. <laughs> <laughs> you need it. Well, I still have some soap. <laughs> I did, but I had it's because I have an issue with the uh, with allergenics. I have to have hypoallergenic everything. So it's mm. like, yeah, if that gets short, I'm screwed. Oh yeah, um, and if you or, have or people who have to get medication or stuff like that, it's like no, I you definitely yeah. want to stack up on that because that's that's not a, a joke. But yep. just the regular things. Yeah. Where where the fear was and yeah. we have not in this culture have had not had to, you know, systemically wide experience that fear yeah. of scarcity. Yeah. As and a culture, the- plenty of people experience scarcity every damn day, right? Yep. Oh yeah. But, but the way they the way they reacted to it is just I mean it's it's telling. Really, like West Coast, um, the first thing that we start having issues with is produce. Everybody walks into into the local fucking Kroger or our version of it and just completely scours the produce department. So you go in to get a tomato, and it's like uh, there might be a can in the back. Yeah, but it's dented. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, we were like. I just started ordering produce in advance because I'm a freak about it too. West Coast, you know, all well, our sure. and, avocado and having, toast and stuff. Well, sure, and what <laughs> and it's also what you're used to having. Yeah. It's like, oh, if I can't. For a while, I said, okay, I'm not gonna go there with a list. I'm gonna go there and see what there is and yeah. figure out. If I can't get like in the very beginning when it's like cyanara beans, there just aren't any beans. Okay. And I'm a vegetarian, so I you know, me and the bean are friends. And it's like what <laughs> now there are just these beans that I usually don't speak to, but oh, yeah. any port in a storm, you know, come on, That's big right. weird bean. <laughs> exactly. Come on. Come um that was my guilty horde because my wife and I are I'd say mostly pescatarian. Um, so I stocked up on pounds and pounds and pounds of beans because yeah. I use, I use dry ones anyway, so I can store a lot of them. Oh, you're hardcore. Okay. Yeah. Well, I still yeah. eat canned beans like a loser because, uh, 
I did, and then I got this wonderful gadget, and I'm going to shut the hell up so I don't die. But I got this, <laughs> got this thing called I got, I got a pressure cooker, and I can cook them from raw without soaking in about 20 minutes. So now. Oh I'm wow! Cook. No, that's okay. really good. That's yeah. super useful because they're much better when they're the dried beans are than the canned beans have so much salt and stuff in them. See, this is what real creative people think and talk about. <laughs> exactly. How do you make your beans? Right. When Caitlin Starling was on, we spent like an hour talking about marijuana. So There you go. <laughs> yeah. So when you get high on beans, how exactly do you <laughs> No, beans are a whole different experience, man, because when you smoke them, they don't smell so good. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point because it's a point about creativity when people talk about creativity as being the exclusive province of you know the creative class that always puts my back up because real creativity is the way that you experience life and the way you live life in the world one of the most creative people i have ever known is a nurse she's retired now but she was a nurse in a nursing home and Believe me, you would want to be one of her patients if you got in that nursing home because that woman would spend every waking hour thinking, how can I make things, how can I do this better? How can I make it easier? How can I get more enrichment for them? She was constantly thinking how to redo the things that she was doing to make them better. But if you had said to her, you're incredibly creative, she would say, no, I'm not. I don't do art. I don't, you know what I mean? It just, it, the definition was not something she would apply to herself, but she was intensely creative. And you can be a creative bean maker too. Clearly, I'm not one, but there are people who are. And there are the same way you could be a creative gardener, or creative, you know, whatever vet. You could be a creative, oh, senator, I guess, if you tried. <laughs> but. Wow, creative politicians. I don't know. Right, That's I'm scary. Trying. I'm trying to think how that would look and uh, <laughs> like, no, let's not let them. Yeah. Let's not let them get creative. They're already dangerous enough. <laughs> oh, well, that's part of the problem is we have one who's like, not yeah. creative would not be the word, but it right. certainly is something we haven't seen before. So Words are stupid. That's right. yeah. just, and it's, it's a peculiar, uh, uh, and we won't go down that road too far, but I will say, what is so peculiar to me about that particular mindset is that it is so relentlessly non-creative. Yeah. It doesn't want to make. It wants to ruin or to use. That's the only things it knows how to do. And I that was... yeah, blows but... its fucking mind. It does. It's like, okay, people talk about the Antichrist and I think the anti-creator because that's really kind of how that feels to exactly. me. Exactly. Exactly. There's yeah. nothing there that's, there's, there's nothing there being made. Only things are being used up or they're being destroyed. Yep. That's yep. It. Consumed, yes. consumed or destroyed. That's yeah. Correct. Yeah. Wow, what a what a mindset, what an ethos, right? Yeah, yeah. art is in, in direct opposition to that. So yeah, and, and I guess can, sorry. No, we can we can fight the good fight, right? By making art and by putting creative and innovative things in the world to help people find their own way to do that, and to keep saying, "No, this is how you make the world better," is by you know making it new. 
making Amen. Amen, sister. Um, the only way, it's the only way anything good is happening right now is our creators around us creating things for us, you know, and so many of them just handing them to us and saying, here, because, you know, um, world needs that right now. And in all arenas, I read a thing about some engineers who looked at the way people were struggling, people with COVID were struggling on the ventilators and said, isn't there a way we can, we're engineers. I mean, come on, isn't there a way we can find to retrofit these ventilators that might be more useful to people? And they did that. It's it's a way to deliver the air more effectively to the tissues that become you know, more sticky and delicate when, when you're ill with COVID and that's why they don't expand as well. And, you know, there's lots of medical things that I don't understand, but the point was, this is a lot more helpful in that situation. Yes. Yes, it is. Created a new thing. Yep. And that's where your, your point about creativity coming up in the most interesting of circles Mm -hmm. comes in because you can't be an engineer, especially without being a creative person and, You'd think that's counterproductive to, you know, the technical aspects of that field, but it makes sense. Right, because they have to be able and they have to be able to ruthlessly visualize a new way to do things or a better way to do something or a way to improve something. And that's the I mean, that is the one good thing about our species is that we can innovate. And that's what's what's best about us is that we can innovate. We're not only, you know, crouching over our toilet paper and beans we can sometimes do things <laughs> that are useful what'd you guys talk about kathy oh toilet paper and beans all the way <laughs> toilet paper and beans and how bad they smell if you smoke them That's right. <laughs> drunken dr seuss and yeah we cover a lot of ground <laughs> And literature. We talked about literature. Yeah, we talked about books. Important ones, too. We talked about the work of the great Kathy Koja, and everybody's going to love that. So, guaranteed. Well, I, hope, I hope that people who – I hope people have fun with the fun hole. I always say that, but I do. I hope the book is in completely enjoyable from in, in whatever way people choose to enjoy it. I hope that that's what they get out of it, that when they're done, they say, that was fun. Yeah, no, mission accomplished. Because <laughs> that's, I mean, I couldn't stop reading it, and it it was just like it was it was well paced. It was just completely wild. It's it's just different, um, you know, from anything I've read. But yeah, an entirely enjoyable experience. Thank you. Good. Well, then my work here is done. All right, then I'm going to bed. That was <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, are you guys ever going to shut up? Don't forget to feed up? the cat, though. Yeah. Don't let that oh, cat you, no, go. No, I, I did that one-handed while we were talking. Oh, hell no, yeah. you would hear no, you would hear screaming. <laughs> it's like, I don't think you heard me the first six times. It's <laughs> fancy feast, like now. Although it's not fancy feast. I would never feed him fancy feast, but no. you know what I mean. Yes, yes. What he wants. <laughs> That's right. Only what he wants yeah. for now. <laughs> but this was super fun. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have I wouldn't trade it for the world and uh we love this episode i know i know i'm speaking for them but i also know i'm telling them <laughs> yes yeah. absolutely thank you so much for coming on it was it was wonderful to get to talk to you about this and i'm so excited too for for, for the immersive novel i'm going to be watching your social media like a hawk 
Yes, yes. Good, thank you. Uh, yes, and, and, I, and I would be remiss not to say I do have a Patreon. If you want to watch it even more closely, a Patreon okay. is involved. All right. It's life now. So. Yep, that's right. But, yeah, I'm, I'm open to all suggestions, too, for – and thank you. I will look that up, and I will look. I do want to see the video, too. But anything that you see that, that you're seeing that's stretching – the experience, I would be grateful for the tip because Excellent. I'm still trying to figure it out. And that's that's the fun, right, is trying to figure it out. Absolutely. And the, and the collaboration of doing so. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by that idea. I will be watching for it. Um, we would truly and sincerely like to have you back closer to the release date on the cypher. Um, because we, uh, we love you and this has been, uh, I know that no, not one of us three is done talking to you. This feels like it just got started. So, uh, yeah, let's have you back and do this again and dive deep into this sucker. I think that's an excellent idea. You bring the pressure cooker and I will bring the beans. It's on. Oh, thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? Thank you.